How can uh, two people look at the same thing, the same event, and see two very different realities? So you may have heard the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. What you might consider worthless, someone else considers that very same thing valuable. So for you, it might be a picture or family heirloom that you wouldn't give away for anything. But to someone else, it means absolutely nothing. Now, we we do this with more than just stuff. We, We do it with events. Some of you, there's, there's sporting events that you've been to or would love to go to, and you'd give your life just to be there. And to quite a number of other people, they don't even know about it. Wouldn't be interested at all. There's traditions from your own country or maybe in your own family that mean everything to you, bring back so much nostalgia that the person sitting next to you knows nothing about all of us all the time are assigning worth to things based on what we assess as their significance. That's also true spiritually. I mean, this right here, this, this is either a supreme treasure or this is nonsense. We should all go home. The church, the gospel, Christ. And it won't do to say that's great if that helps you get through. This is either true, this either corresponds to what is true, or it doesn't. There were such different reactions to Jesus. Jesus never allowed for polite neutrality, forces the issue. Either someone believes in him, someone treasures him, or they don't. Now, unless you're a delusional narcissist, we don't see ourselves that way. We we understand people can be neutral toward us, unaware of us, and it makes no difference whatsoever. But not Jesus. So we go back to John's gospel this morning. We're going to finish John 11. We'll begin in verse 45. We'll go all the way through chapter 12, verse 11. And here we see a dividing line. Some treasure Jesus. Others see him, I won't say as trash, but at the very least, they, best I should say, they see him as a traitor. That's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus divides unto death. Jesus divides to death. He's either the supreme treasure or a scandalous traitor. Jesus divides to death. He's either the supreme treasure or he is a scandalous traitor. So as we work through this text, It's Jesus' death that comes into view. There's no neutrality. He's dividing the world. 
So this morning, our two points, sentenced to death, prepared for burial. If you're taking notes, one, sentenced to death, two, prepared for burial. May the Lord bless you as you hear his word this morning. Let's begin with sentenced to death. That's beginning in chapter 11, verse 45 through uh, the end of chapter 11. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. We're in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has raised a man from the dead. And quite a number of people saw it. So if raising Lazarus from the dead was the earthquake, here's the aftershocks. What do you think you would do if you saw someone raised from the dead? with your own eyes. So many people who don't believe in Jesus, who doubt the claims that he's made, say, if only I could have seen him raised from the dead. If only I could see him now. Here's an account that puts that to the test. It follows Lazarus's resurrection, where we've just read in verse 44 that Jesus said, unbind him because he's alive and let him go. And verse 45 begins with, therefore. So it's a logical inference from what's just happened. And for John, the logical implication is that many of the Jews who came and saw him believed. They believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. It's easy to think that 
Seeing Jesus as the great treasure would be the natural reaction to those who saw Jesus put his power on display by raising a man from the dead. And that's what he's done. It's easy to overlook that Jesus had prayed. Look back up at verse 42. Look back up at verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So John means for us to make this connection between Jesus' praying to the Father and his answer to prayer. You, if you're a Christian, are meant to take confidence from this in the efficacy of your prayers. On this side of the resurrection, God has given you everything you need to be confident to pray. The Holy Spirit who works within your own heart and helps you to pray because you do not know how to pray as you ought. And the risen Christ in heaven to intercede for you such that right now your prayers are effective. Right now, things are happening in your life and around you because of prayers prayed by people in the past. What might the Lord do through your prayers? Through our prayers together, laid up in heaven, a long time from now, that only eternity will reveal. Now to me, that is a thrilling thought. You ever wonder why we spend so much time here in our service praying? I pray long pastoral prayers on purpose for people and for the authorities and churches and countries and the work of the gospel because we are confident in this. God is working through them. It's why we gather once a month on a Sunday evening to pray together. We believe laying up prayers matters together as a church. God answers our prayers. And here's John helping us see this direct correlation between Jesus's public prayer and the answer right here in this text. Discipline yourself for prayer and delight in the privilege of prayer. Make it a habit and work to make that, keep that habit. We've seen in this gospel that Jesus has been opposed. He's been misunderstood. And now we're starting to see more people, Jews, believe in the Messiah. That's who John wrote to. John's own desire for his fellow Jews of that day was to confess like Martha and these Jewish people that Jesus is the Christ. And he's showing us this is the most logical thing you can do based on what Jesus has done. And yet that's not the reaction of everyone. Some went to the Pharisees and told them. These are the tattletales. They went to proclaim not good news, but another thing he had done. They went to proclaim Jesus, not that he had raised the dead, but that, as we will see, he is worthy of death. They were concerned for Jesus. Same event, two different reactions. 
It brings the chief priest. It brings the council together. This is the Sanhedrin, 70 people. It's the governing body of the Jewish people. This is the elite group Nicodemus was a part of. They had power. They asked themselves, what are we to do? He does perform many signs. In scripture, the pattern is that when new revelation is given, God attests his messenger with signs. So don't think of these signs as random in scripture. They authenticate the messenger. Uh, When Peter stood up to that crowd at Pentecost in Acts 2, he said this to them, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. They weren't random. They weren't for a show. They communicated, they authenticated, they attested Jesus and his claims were from God. And the religious leaders were meant to see the signs and to clarify, lead the people to what the signs signified. And instead they see the signs and they do all they can to deny what they signify. So committed are they to this position that they who were meant to discern the work of God are actually working to put God in his place. Put themselves in God's place. If we let him go on like this, verse 48, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. If we let him go on like this, he's nothing more than a traitor. To them, he's a nuisance to be dealt with. Blind that he is from God. They're the very ones who should have been most concerned to point the people to believe in him. And their chief concern is that everyone might. Don't ever believe that if you with your own eyes had seen someone raised from the dead or it was reported to you directly by eyewitnesses that you would have believed. Unbelief, denial of Jesus is not ultimately because of something God has not done. It is because of your own heart. It is not due to the lack of something from without. It is due to the presence of sin from within. These religious leaders understood very well his claims and what his authority meant for their authority. They understood they were being confronted directly. They saw the signs. They understood he's doing what only the Messiah can do. And they refused to believe in him. Now, unbelief never works itself out in a vacuum. Always on the other side of unbelief is belief in something else. Something is more plausible to you. So if you're a Christian, why do you grow weary of prayer? Well, you're lazy. We're lazy. But the reality is you just start to think this doesn't matter. What's the point? That's what you believe. Or you you drift towards sin. 
because you believe something about it captures you, that you love, you believe will satisfy you. Or if you're not a Christian, you, you believe something else is more truthful. So whether it's sin that's tempting you or prayerlessness or unbelief, ask yourself what you believe. Is that credible? Have you interrogated that like you've interrogated the Christian faith or whatever it else it is that you've started not to believe? On the other side of this unbelief by the religious leaders was the belief that the Messiah would not look like this. He wouldn't oppose us. He wouldn't challenge our power. He would further our cause. You see what they're gripped by. They are consumed with power in this world. They don't want the Romans to take away their place or their nation. Now, of course, the Jewish people here are under the power of Rome, but they were semi-autonomous, right? They certainly had the power to carry out some of their laws in circumstances like this. You, you see this in Acts, right? The, the Jewish leaders and rulers can do a number of things. They can only go so far. There's times when they take Paul and the other apostles to the Romans. So they do both. And the same is going to be true with Jesus. If he gets out of hand, if he keeps bringing up resurrection, if he keeps raising people from the dead, more people are going to follow him. And that's going to threaten their power. And that's going to spill over and Rome will crush us. Now, the irony of all of this is that after Jesus was raised from the dead, despite the religious leaders' best efforts, in 70 AD, the Romans took away their place and took away their nation. They destroyed the temple. Here the Sanhedrin is perplexed. What do we do about a man raised from the dead? And it's Caiaphas, verse 49, the high priest, the one who's gonna be so prominent at Jesus' own trial, who speaks in anger. These fools, you know nothing. He's put off. There's a clear way to handle this. It's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The man who is raising people from the dead should be treated as someone who has committed treason. Sacrifice him. One, for the good of the whole. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. Again, John in his gospel uses double meaning. When something is said on its face, it means one thing, literally. But John means us to see it means much more than that. So Jesus spoke again and again of his being lifted up. And of course, he was speaking of his ascension. But how does his ascension come about? Through the cross, where he's lifted up to die. So here, Caiaphas, as he's thinking about what this rising following of Jesus could mean for the Jews and the Roman Empire, literally says and believes it's better for one man to die. He be killed rather than the nation perish at the hands of the Romans. So here, justice takes a back seat and cold, ruthless political calculation takes over. Some look to Jesus for their very life. 
Others want him sentenced to death. One man's trash, another man's treasure. John shows us that Caiaphas is speaking better than he knows. The whole plan of God hinges on one man dying so that many others would not have to. Caiaphas didn't just speak better than he knew. He he prophesied, verse 51, better than he knew. So the high priest at this time of year would often in various ways reveal things to God's people. Caiaphas here unwittingly prophesizes that Jesus would die for the nation and not just the nation, the children of God scattered abroad. So notice what Caiaphas does do. He unwittingly prophesies that by Jesus dying, his death would be substitutionary. Jesus dies, others live. Jesus doesn't die, others perish. Caiaphas thinks politically. So even when he's saying that he prophesied that the people of God would be gathered who were scattered abroad, Caiaphas means the scattered Jews in the diaspora, that when the Messiah comes, eventually they would come and realize the kingdom being gathered in. Jesus' death was substitutionary but in a far deeper way than Caiaphas ever conceived. Jesus' dying would mean sinners would live. But if Jesus didn't die, the cross really is trash or it's a treasure. It really is the normal end for a treasonous, delusional, deceived criminal or the cross is the very place where God himself accomplished salvation. The gospel holds out to you that Jesus died there as a substitute for actual sinners who can do nothing in ourselves to make ourselves right with God. So just as Adam represented human beings in his work of sin, so Jesus Christ represents human beings, sinners, in his work of righteousness. One man represents many. This is how God has structured the human race. Covenant heads. One man dies, many others live. Christ didn't just die, Christ was raised. And Christ holds out to you salvation, even this morning. On the cross, real sin was imputed to Christ, that Christ's righteousness might be imputed to others. His righteousness, yours, and a great exchange. Repent, believe in Christ. He alone can give you life and the righteousness that you desperately need for all of eternity. Christ will gather his children scattered abroad. Sheep, not of this fold. As Jesus had spoken of them in John 10, Gentiles. Jesus came for them. This is the same logic as when you read John's first letter, 1 John, when he says of Jesus, he is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath by his own sacrifice the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Jesus didn't die for one nation. He died for people from many nations. The children of God might be gathered who've been scattered abroad. So what you see and what Caiaphas is saying here is this outworking of how what he meant for evil, God means for good. Is Caiaphas and his counsel wicked? Yes. Did God work through that same counsel for good? Yes. So in this one action, you see how God relates to evil in order to do something good. This is hard to understand, but it's revealed in Scripture. Caiaphas' intentions, what he says is wicked. He gives wicked counsel to these leaders that will lead to Jesus' death. And at the same time, behind it is God's good plan, which the Son has willingly undertaken to go to the cross for sinners. What Caiaphas meant for evil, and it was real evil. God meant for good, eternal good. I really want, if you're a Christian, for you to be sure of this. There was a book written uh, decades ago by Rabbi Harold Kushner. It's a best-selling book. Makes sense why it's a best-selling book. The title is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You may not know this about Rabbi Kushner, but his own son was diagnosed with a degenerative disease that would kill him and did kill him when he was only in his early teens. And so he was faced with perplexing evil and confusion. And so he writes in this book of the good God, who means well, but is ultimately unable to prevent evil. Now, which is true. That God, or the God we meet meet in Scripture. And the God who is, is always better than the God of your imagination. God reveals massive truth like this so that when you walk through perplexing, tragic, difficult, unjust, unjust circumstances, you can take comfort and confidence in the God who is. Whatever injustice, whatever wrong, whatever tragedy, whatever man's intentions, God means it for you, Christian, for good. Behind every wicked word Caiaphas speaks, God means it for righteousness and grace and glory, for the eternal good of his people. Christian, your God is so great. He is so good that even as the wicked plan, even as the wicked do, wickedness, they cannot thwart, they can only unwittingly advance the plan of God. So whatever confusion in your life, whatever perplexes you in this fallen world, for you, brother or sister, you really do live in the world in which your God only is and can only do good. In eternity, we will look back at every circumstance in our life, and we will see with clarity, he only did good. Trust him now. Trust him. He can work for your good. As you grow in the knowledge of God, as you grow in the knowledge of his attributes, it brings ballast to your Christian life. 
ballast for trials. So the ballast is the part of the ship that balances it so that it's not shaking and wobbling. Christian, we need ballast in our spiritual life to flourish, to endure, to trust. Press into biblical teaching, doctrine, that you might grow in godliness and delight and worship in the Lord. That's how you prepare for storms of life that have not yet come. So Caiaphas has given his counsel, and now they make their plans to put him to death. They have sentenced him to death. And notice once again, verse 54, therefore. What's the logical implication of this? Jesus didn't walk openly, but stayed with his disciples. Is he avoiding death? No. He always lives in light of the hour. The hour has not yet come, but it's coming. And as we come to this end point, this account of Lazarus's own resurrection, we learn Passover is at hand. Verse 55, this is the third Passover in the book of John. It's a feast in which God's own people remember. Their life together is rooted in the historic event of the blood of the lamb being put on their door as a substitute for the death of their own. Another Passover approaches and the lamb of God has been sented to shed his own blood so that many others' blood would not be shed. To some, he's worthy of death. To others, his life itself. Crowds have made their way up to Jerusalem, up. It's elevated from sea level. They've gone early because it's Passover. They needed time to do the purification rites if they'd come into contact with a, a dead body. And they are looking for Jesus, some in curiosity, others that they might arrest him. How did we get to this point? Because a man died and Jesus raised that man to life. And it's divided. The two sides, all of these people, some love him and long to be other under his authority. Others deny his authority, even when the evidence is right there in front of their eyes. An arrest warrant has been issued for Jesus. Think of this. In a world of unjust trials, this man is headed for a trial in which the verdict has already been reached. And yet as much as these religious authorities think they're in control, they are only being used by God to carry out God's plan that the Son of God be lifted up. The resurrection and the life sentenced to death. And he is prepared for burial. That's the second scene of this narrative, prepared for burial. Look over at chapter 12. We'll read the first 11 verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to portray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you. but You do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only of account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, here we are at Passover week. Jesus is sentenced to death. He's a wanted man. It's a week that was wrought with meaning, rituals, gathering, rites. And Jesus goes toward danger. Wasn't long ago that the same Jews that were there wanted to stone him, and he goes again. Verse 1, again, therefore, What's the logical implication? He came to Bethany because they sought to arrest him. Friends, Jesus' obedience was in his incarnated state at every moment up to the cross. This is the providential time for the son to go toward Jerusalem. And as the obedient son, he goes. He goes with his eyes wide open. The Jewish leaders are carrying out their plan, but it is Jesus ultimately who is carrying out his. The hour approaches. And he went, verse one, where Lazarus was. And what a description. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Hashtag no big deal. Now think of this. Jesus is a wanted man for arrest because he's with a man, not that he murdered, but that he raised from the dead. Lazarus was dead and he's alive and he's reclining at a table with Jesus. It's very likely a banquet, most likely a Saturday evening after Sabbath, six days before Jesus died. And here we are after his resurrection and Mary and Martha clearly want to thank their friend. This is a banquet celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. He's feasting with his resurrected friend. He knows him and he knows that within the week he will die. And who is Jesus thinking about? Himself or his friend? Oh, you can see why they loved him. Why Mary and Martha and Lazarus loved him. He wasn't a teacher from on high. 
in the clouds. He was with them. He lived life with them. He shared in their joys. He was concerned for them. It's no different from any others of his disciples. He's not a distant Christ. He's not an aloof Christ. Jesus is the kind of Messiah who loves to share a banquet table and feast with his friends. It goes near to his people into the reality of our lives, our ordinary and messy lives. And notice verse three, therefore, his friends are reclining with him at table. And what's the logical implication for Mary? She takes a pound of expensive ointment. So pure nard is probably imported ointment, very expensive. She's wiping his feet with her hair. This is extravagant, embarrassing honoring of Jesus. You you would be tempted to say, stop. Servants cared for the feet of others. But here's Mary, and Mary is more than likely prominent, doing it herself. The fact that her hair is down shows us the length that she's going to. It would have been proper for her to keep her hair bound up, maybe even covered in public to honor uh, Jesus. Jewish women didn't unbind their hair like this, much less use their hair to anoint and to wipe the feet of a man in public. So deep is her personal devotion and treasuring of Christ. So real is her personal thankfulness for Jesus and his work and her life and in her brother's life. So if Caiaphas spoke better than he knew, what is Mary doing? She is doing better than she knows. Personal cost. And even given the way she's doing this, it cost her her own reputation. She lavishly honors and shows her devotion to Jesus. And why did she do this? She loved him. She treasured him. It was natural for all of her love to just demonstrate itself in something costly. I mean, think of this. At the very moment that the Pharisees have said to everyone, given orders, arrest him. If you know where he is, let us know. Mary does this publicly. They saw him as a traitor. Mary sees him as a treasure. When it comes to whatever it is you love, you will show your devotion. Your heart treasures something. You will show that. You will honor that. You did that this last week. We can't help but do it. Because what we love occupies the highest place in our mind and our affections. In his treatise on religious affections, Jonathan Edwards wrote, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. Notice he doesn't say holy duties, but delights, affections. So what he means by this is what your soul approves or disapproves, what 
pleases you, what displeases you. And he writes, true religious affections are primarily founded on the loveliness of the moral excellency of the divine thing. A love to divine things for the beauty and sweetness of their moral excellency is the first beginning and spring of all holy affections. What what does he mean? With Mary, nothing about this is from duty. It's all delight. She loves him because of his moral excellency. She reveres him. When you come to Jesus in faith, when you truly come to him, when you know him, you will have affections for him. Not mere sentiment. This is affection rooted in personal knowing. So Mary honors him lavishly because he's loved her. He's loved her brother lavishly. Do you know Jesus? Where are your affections for Jesus? Now, maybe this morning you know that you've grown dull, cold in your affections for Jesus. What do you need to do? Do you need to drum them up, pretend, fake it till you make it? No, you need to think much upon Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he's done for you. Maybe you need to take a step back and look at the patterns of your life, the habits of your life, how you're relating to Christ. Maybe you need to spend time meditating in scripture. You know, these disciplines of the faith, they're, they're put together, they're, they're put you in the path of grace. Think more on how Jesus has loved you, pursued you, moved toward you. Think of his agony on the cross. Think of the glories that he left in heaven to veil his glory in human flesh. Think of what he promises you for the future. If you know him, and as you know him, you will have affection for him. Jesus divides. Some believe, some want him dead, some treasure him, Mary. Others think, like Judas, one of his own disciples, what she had done was wasted treasure. Verse four, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is a year's worth of wages. But of course, Judas is not sincere. John tells us he's a thief. He's already stolen from the money bag. So Judas seeks to pit altruism, selfless concern for others, against devotion to Jesus. Somehow, you could show such concern for others that could take the place of devotion, even costly devotion to Jesus. Now, some can be so caught up in piety and even doctrinal knowledge that their life is divorced, devoid of compassion for others. Now, of course, they don't understand doctrine if that's where they are. But then there's the other side of this, the do-gooder, the humanitarian, the person so socially concerned for others. But beneath it all, there's no love for Jesus. There's no devotion to Christ. And Jesus rejects this. 
We can't ever spiritualize our concern for others at the cost of devotion to Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. He affirms this, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. It was common to anoint the body lavishly after death in a funeral. It not just prevented the stench, but it honored the body. And Jesus is saying that she should keep it in the sense of as a memory to her credit for the day of his burial. It was in wickedness that Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied of the death of the Messiah. And it's in righteousness that Mary unwittingly anointed the Messiah, prepared his body for death. She prepared him for burial and Jesus accepted her devotion to him. For the poor, you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, if Jesus is not who he says he is, that is a statement of supreme arrogance. If he's not the son of God, if he's not God incarnate, that's blasphemous. He's here speaking from the law, Deuteronomy 15. Moses in that chapter holds out this ideal that there would be no poor in the land. And at the same time, he commands the people of God to give generously in that chapter. For we read, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Jesus is not opposed to generosity, commends it. But what's he doing here? He recognizes the little time that he has left. And he wants his disciples to participate with him in the end of his mission. And Mary is choosing wisely in honoring him. She doesn't do it for public praise. And yet the Lord in his wisdom and power ensures that her act would instruct others until his return, even as it is proclaimed again today. Just consider how sweet that night was how much more it meant in light of what was coming. There weren't many more times like this left. Verse nine, the large crowd learned that Jesus was there as well as Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And what did they want? They wanted to be with him. And what's so surprising is it wasn't just Jesus who divided, Lazarus divided. Lazarus raised From the dead, the religious leaders, so blind, they want to put him back in the grave because his resurrection might bring more people to Jesus. Do not ever underestimate the power of sin. It is so deceptive, it will drive you to kill a man raised from the dead. It's so easy to see how irrational this is. It's so hard to see it when it pervades your own life. Sin has affected the world. I mean, the most rational things in this account, believing in Jesus, anointing him with expensive ointment are the acts opposed. And now the religious leaders want to kill the man raised from the dead. One man's trash is another man's treasure. This is the cross. It will divide the world along these lines. It was the most shameful way to die in the ancient world. And yet, his death on the cross 
is a treasure. By those who by grace see it by faith and can say with joy, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior.